On this episode, we talk about active versus passive investing, NFTs, and Ben brought his charts. Welcome to episode 11 of Think at Heart. I'm Scott Goodfellow. This is Ben Hart. We are Hart Investment Hello. Group. You know, Ben, I feel like I don't do a good enough job really promoting who we are, how to get in touch with us, stuff like that. We do have social media. We do have a big relaunch yep. coming up, which we haven't done officially. So our platforms are going to change over the next few months. But I think right now, yep. the best place for people to find us is LinkedIn, right? We do. Yep. You can find us on yep. LinkedIn at Heart Investment Group. Ben and I both have our own LinkedIn profiles as well. Definitely come and follow us there as well. Obviously, at uh, Ben Hart and Scott Goodfellow. I'll link all those things down below in the description too, so that you can click on those and give everybody a follow. The other thing I forgot to do too, we're a growing community here. You got to like and subscribe, right? Like any good YouTuber, yes. right? I got to promote the like and yes. subscribes, right? We really, like, yes. we got to yes. get our first milestone is we got to get over 100. We're on episode 11. We should be there by now, right? But I don't think we've yes. really been pushing. Yes. We've been focusing on no. delivering the content, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we're coming off a big episode last week of, uh, we went heavy in the options. We went heavy in the options. I watched it back. Yeah. What, what did we you did. think of it? What did you think of it last week? You know, when you go into the, the, you go through the interview and the whole presentation and at the end, sometimes you're like, how did that go? How did it play out? You know, the feedback's been, been pretty good. Lots of people have liked what, what it was said and the details and everything that Ryan went through, you know, feedback, not only from the clients and, and, uh, other advisors that have watched it, uh, feedback from our compliance department even has been great and compliance department from other places. If you can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less. It's been good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a heavy subject. And you, like you said, a lot of people loved yes. it. It showed, it really showed the knowledge of Ryan. And that's what we're trying to do here is like bring on those experts for people that want to know, that want to get more into those types of things. Right. I watched yeah. it back. I thought it was pretty funny because I didn't have much to say. It was pretty, uh, pretty advanced. But hey, we're not trying to fool anybody here. You are the you are the investment guy, right? I am here to help you build the brand, right? We're building a big right. brand here. Yep. We're not just changing the game. We're starting a new one. And I think with any good team, yeah. there needs to be, yeah. you're the steak and I'm the sizzle. You're yeah. Warren Buffett. Yes. I'm Charlie Munger. You're Ron McLean. <laughs> I'm Don Cherry. You're right. Bert. I'm Ernie. Yeah. You know, <laughs> all the best duos, right? There's always one guy and the other, almost complete opposite. So let's not kid anybody. If somebody's looking for an investor or, or an advisor, yeah, right, they're coming yeah. to you for those questions, yeah. not for me, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, so, sure. so yeah. when we have a guest like that on and the topics get heavy, I sit back, throw in we'll a few jokes, back, yeah. right? Yeah, enjoy and yep. learn myself, right? Yeah, exactly. It's awesome. Exactly. It's awesome. I know. I know. That's why it works so well. Yeah, and that's where yeah. we're going right to the top, bud, me and you. You, you got it. Here we go. <laughs> Listen, I had uh, a buddy of mine say he ran into Ron McLean after a hockey game. And uh, they're having a few drinks at the bar. And Ron just was crushing it on the dance floor. <laughs> he loved, loved to get out and dance out there. So I'll save some of those moves for you later. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, actually, now that I think about it, who's, are you Ron McLean or am I Ron McLean? Are you Don Cherry? I don't know. I don't know. I think so. I don't know. I think so. <laughs> Regardless. Well, you're definitely Bert and I'm definitely Ernie, I think. 
True. Shape and anyway, Ernie, <laughs> Ernie was funnier. Bert was a serious guy, right? Yes, yes. Always getting mad. Anyway, I digress. I digress. I guess we got to get into some business. People want to know about uh, what's been going on this week. What's in the news? Yep. Yep. So, yeah. how do you want to start? What do you want to start with, there, Mister Master Investor? Uh, maybe we can start with uh, we can start with the passive versus active to start with, and then uh, let's start with that. And then we can maybe delve into the NFTs and take take a run at that. I know you've been been reading a lot about that, and certainly an interesting subject. Well, let's talk about that. You know, I mentioned about changing the game. You've been changing the game. I think that's maybe a big conversation, right? I mean, active versus passive sure. has existed for a long time. Yeah. So I'm exaggerating, sure. right? Obviously, that's yeah. my rule here. I exaggerate things. So, yeah. but active versus passive, maybe you can talk a little bit about those, just kind of a, as an overview of those two different strategies. The passive strategy we start with probably easier to describe. The passive strategy is where this indexing has come from, and Vanguard's kind of been the leader in this space where they they brought out these ETFs, which are exchange traded funds that track and replicate the index. So if you are looking to buy the S and P 500, and you just want to do what the S and P 500 does minus some fees, you buy an ETF. And so you had Vanguard really being the leader in this space. And really what's happened is they really have been sucking in a lot of capital. So Passive just does the benchmark minus fees. So hypothetically, what we ha- we saw happen last year, if you own the S&P 500, you, know, you would have owned the uh, SPY probably, something like that, which is the S&P 500. It tracks it. So when it went up at the start of the year, you participated. When it went down 40% in the year, you also participated on the downside. And the objective of that passive investor is to just replicate what the, what the index is doing at any given t- point. And this took and has uh, had a lot of attention because you've had a lot of famous people put money towards this. And you've had you know, Tony Robbins talk about this passive investment style. And it's the best thing on the, in the world is to follow this passive investment style where you buy a, a basket of ETFs that uh, you never have to change. And as, as, as long as you assume that everything that's happened over the last 40 years is going to happen over the next 40 years, you're going to get the same kind of performance. So it's really... Really a hands-off approach where I'm not going to try to investigate anything to do with the market. I'm just going to put it into we'll call the market, and uh, we'll we'll let it happen. Whatever happens. So is that how most people invest these days, or? You know, the challenge is trying to find some of the Canadian information. The intel in the U.S. is much better. But if you look at fund flows, if you look at where money's coming into the market, it's a hundred percent of fund flows is going passive. Right. Yeah. So if you look at capital flows, it's where the money, you know, where that money's coming from is it's it's coming from the the IRA, IRAs and the 401ks, which are similar to the RSPs, where they suck in all of the capital, all that money that's all the new money that's coming into the market. It's all going into Vanguard or or BlackRock, and they're they're the ones that are taking all of the new capital. So as you see additional fund flows, it goes in and, and passive in this passive investment. So you know, we're definitely in a bubble of passive investment. And, you know, that's part of why we have this skew where you have Amazon, you got 
Google, you got Apple, you got all these companies that have gone up kind of in a straight line where there's not a lot of thinking involved. It's just these ETFs every month, every month money comes in, you know, you, these billions of dollars that are being saved by, by individuals in the US, they're all going into these same passive strategies, which is jacking the prices up of the underlying holdings. Because, you know, for example, when Tesla came into the index, when they were added to the S&P 500, every Every single ETF in the world that tracks the S&P 500 had to buy their shares. And so every month as more money comes in, they have to buy their shares. So there's no thinking around, yeah, they don't make money or they trade at 1,500 times earnings. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. A passive investor goes in and buys um, every single day that they, they have to map that, that ETF. Right. I mean, that sounds reasonable. Why wouldn't just everybody do that, right? It's an easy thing, maybe seem less risky versus an active uh, strategy, mm-hmm. right? So, what's your, what, how's that different than an yes. active strategy? Yeah, so obviously, some people like to take that approach because it's easy and simple and they don't need to think about it. But what happens is you end up getting these massive skews and as valuations go up. You know, in 99, 2000 in Canada, you had uh, Nortel and JDS making up something like 50% of the TSX. So what happens is the inverse of that, when those things start going down, you participate harder on the down than you than if you owned a balanced portfolio, a, a mix of, of, of different holdings. And we see it happen kind of everywhere in the world. And, you know, in Finland, uh, Nokia was 50% of their, of their market. So if you, you own passive, you, you got crushed on the way back down. And right now what we're seeing in the NASDAQ uh, un, unravel, unravel a little bit is you're seeing it come down. It's down probably about 15% peak to trough right now, where the S&P, which is a bit more diversified, the S&P would own industrials, materials, financials. NASDAQ wouldn't have any exposure to that. So if you've been had the benefit, benefit of, of going the upside, now you're getting, you're getting hit really hard as things start to sell off. Right. What's your approach then? Yeah, so active, the active approach, and you know, I think that there's there's multiple ways of active, right? So I certainly will talk about my approach. Maybe I'll just blanket active first. And so active tends to people seem to think that mutual funds in general are active investment managers. Well, there are a lot of mutual fund managers that would be active investors. But the majority of them are not. The majority of them are benchmark huggers. So if you look at, I won't mention any of the names of those funds. <laughs> not right now, anyways. <laughs> Save that maybe for another day. But the, the episode fifty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're calling Let's everybody out. Episode fifty. <laughs> You're going down. Exactly. Most of them look like, if you looked at, we'll just say a Canadian equity fund at uh, one of the big Canadian mutual fund houses, they're going to look like the index plus or minus a couple percent. So their comp is going to be based on how well they do, their compensation, excuse me, how much they get paid is going to be based on how well they do against their their benchmark. So, you know, if their benchmark is down 40% and then down 35%, they get paid better because they outperform their benchmark. Even though they they lost thirty five percent, they did five percent better. So and then again on the upside, if they outperform on the upside, they get they get their bonuses. So they're 
not willing really to to be an active manager. They they fall somewhere on the line, looking to maybe squeak out a little percent here or there of returns. And typically, if you're owning that kind of investment strategy, you get you're going to pay two and a half percent for it. And so, if you're comparing that to an ETF, that's probably not you know your ETF is probably a better route for you. But then, if you wanted truly active, which is what we do. You know, there's some some thought around what's happening in the world. So from what we do is we look at where are we in the market cycle? Where do we expect this cycle to go and head? And then how do we position the portfolio to ensure that we benefit from that? And so that is also in good markets and in bad markets. So obviously last year was a very bad market. So when markets sold off hard, the portfolios didn't feel it. And so as markets rally, you're in a position to benefit because the portfolio starts moving higher uh, quite a bit sooner because you have a significantly less drawdown. That means you have to be active and pay attention to the daily moves in the market and the daily moves in the, in the, in the economy. It seems like it'd be more of a challenge for the advisor to be an active investor, right? Yeah. It'd be like take an active approach yeah. versus a passive approach, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't think a I don't think a traditional investment advisor can be active anymore because a traditional investment advisor, you know, they need to pick up the phone and, and call their clients every time they do a transaction or a trade. You know, if you got 150 clients and you decide you're going to sell your stocks in one company and buy it in another company, you're gonna get 150 calls, you're gonna get 150 different fill prices, you're gonna get a little bit of maybe some better performance for some, worse performance for others. I don't think you can you can adjust to the current environment with that with that tr- traditional style. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? If you had to call everybody every time you made a trade, I mean it wouldn't be possible. So how many P, how many advisors have our portfolio managers that have discretionary clients? There's quite a few advisors that carry the title where they call themselves portfolio managers. But I'd see there's fairly few that actually run their portfolios from an active discretionary management style. You know, a lot of them will track something, you know, they'll track uh, whatever they're told to track at the at the firm they're at. I mean, then they'll adjust the portfolios based on that. And a lot of others too again will just have the title to have the title but not actually run discretionary portfolios. So, I'd say it's a it's a fairly small number based on my experience. So is there more risk with one or the other, do you find, or no? I think everyone views risk will run one one way, right? right? Like they say, you're taking more risk by being active or you're taking more risk by being passive. So I would say that my view is that you're taking more risk by doing nothing, <laughs> where many others' view would be you're taking risk by doing something. So the classic example of, of this is, is Bitcoin. And I know we've talked about it multiple times. I know we'll touch on it more uh, when we get into my charts. Um, so that'll be exciting, but uh, that's a classic example where I look at I look at it and I go, "What am I taking risk by putting this in portfolios, or is the risk that I'm not going to put it into portfolios?" And so I would look at it from that perspective. 
I think everything is about managing risk. And so I spend as much time on managing risk and managing downside as I do on managing upside, where people look at things that maybe appear new and think that it's risky. You know, I think it's more risky sometimes to not pay attention to, to what's coming and what's ahead. And, you know, as we've talked multiple times, this business that spends so much time on looking backwards. Well, this worked. This is what worked last time. This is what worked yesterday instead of, you know, what's working ahead of us. And so I think there's a bigger risk at not thinking about what's working ahead of us than, uh, than doing nothing. What do you, how, just last question before we move on about that is, is how do you think people should know which one is the right one for them? Right. Like, I mean, everybody has a different style that they're comfortable with. Sure. Right. Yeah. What in your opinion, in your experience, what do you think is there a type of person or stage in their life perhaps? Right. What what do you think would be the best? That's a really great question. And uh, really comes down to kind of what kind of a screening tool should you use to see what's right for people? And so that's a great question. I don't have a simple answer for you. What I found from dealing with the clients that I've dealt with over the years, it's completely a f- completely what is the right fit for you and what that fit ends up tends tends to be a lot more soft soft you know variables than it is hard variables right like when you talk and 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 meet with somebody you have to connect around what you're doing what your style's like what your comfort is and and really you got to find out what that fit is and so you know as I've as I've dealt with clients that weren't the right fit for me, we've gone our separate ways, either from their choice or from my choice. And now when I meet with clients, that's kind of one of the first things I say is, look, you know, I can show you what I do. I can prove to you, here's what I've done. Here's how I perform for clients. Here's my fees. Here's the costs and all of that. But at the end of the day, if we don't like each other, we don't get along with each other, the relationship's not going to work. So Ultimately, I think it really is what's the trust you have in, in your team and your advisor, what your comfort in what they're doing and what they're thinking about is really the, the priority of how you get there. You know, how do you screen for the right kind of person to fit with you? That's a tough question. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, definitely something to cover more as well. I think, uh, yeah. you know, especially in markets like this, you need, I mean, a market like this, it certainly is a benefit to, to be an active, right? You can react on a day-to-day basis. So I, I definitely, definitely see that as an advantage. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, I met uh, met with a prospect a couple of weeks ago, and that was one of their questions. Like, what did you do? Like, what have you done in the last three months in the portfolios? Because the advisor that they're with now has done nothing, like zero. So that's a great yeah. opportunity to plug exactly what we do. We just started recently. People would ask, what are you doing? And they will, you know, rather than meeting with everybody all the time, right. Mm-hmm. Then we actually yeah. started doing a live stream every Friday afternoon where Ben actually goes over yeah. the trades that he's made, not individually, right. But as a ba- as an overall portfolio and goes over it and it's for clients only. Right. So we don't have to worry about yep. it. Yep. And yep. whoever wants to tune in, tunes in, we record it, we send it to the the client base only, and they know what Ben's done in the last week. And he also mentions on there, he talks about any current events, and it's, he's watching yeah. the market, and what the plans are for the next week as well, which I think is a, is a game changer. I don't think there's anybody doing that. So no. that helps people no. stay informed, kind of like what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So that's what I, that's what we found is, you know, you meet with a client after six months or a year and you don't talk through the hundred trades that you made last year. <laughs> they just see a static uh, portfolio in front of them. So it's been, it's been really has been good. Clients have loved it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It keeps yeah. them involved, yeah. right? Nothing like parking your money somewhere. You don't know what's yeah. going on with it. Right. So it's, I think yeah. people, it's been a breath, yeah. breath of fresh air for people for sure. I've been wanting to talk about this for weeks, <laughs> right? But like anything new, you know, you have to really start to understand it. And I would say I'm a, we're still at the very tippity top of understanding. It's kind of like where we were with Bitcoin like a, a year ago, let's say. So we're going to introduce this in the podcast for the first time ever. NFTs. Okay. Some of you may have heard of them before, but most people haven't. So they're non-fungible tokens. So this is a new way. It's basically fractional investing. Did I say that right, Ben? I think there's yeah, a lot of there's a di- lot of different ways that that you can get involved with NFTs, right? Yeah. But for the most part, it's fractional investing and smart contracts. What other things would you mention that it is? Yeah, so I think that's right. I think that's a good way to describe it. The other, the other way I would think to kind of add that is it's really fractional ownership of anything, like fractional ownership of any asset in the world. People have really embraced this, especially people with big communities, right? So you see big yeah. YouTubers, um, you know, really starting to monetize everything that they're doing and and selling pieces of their businesses by doing this, right? And I think a good example would be big in the art world right now is probably where it's taking off the most and probably collectible items as well, right? So think of it like this, where an artist would typically sell their painting and let's say it's they're new in their career and they sell this hold up for $1,000, right? And they would hand it over and they would get their $1,000 and that would be it, right? Now, what you can do is... And this is for both hard assets and digital assets as well. You can create a smart contract. Let's say you sell that for $1,000 and then that person turns around and sells it for $10,000. Well, within the smart contract, that artist can write into that contract that they get royalties on that painting forever. So that grows as they, their popularity grows, the value yeah. of, of that asset grows as well, right? And they, they continue to get paid on it. Royalties just kind of like a movie star would that would take royalties on them on or sitcom star like Seinfeld will get paid for Seinfeld for the rest of his life, right? Every time somebody watches it. Sure. So every time there's a trade yeah. made on that asset, that artist gets paid, yeah. which I think is going to be a game changer for especially artists, right? I'm sure there's yeah. a million yeah. other ways that it's really going to benefit, but that's just, sure. that's just one way, right? I know you have a couple other yeah. ways. Why don't you jump in here, Ben? No, no, that's great. That's a good description. And I think that it could... I think that where the crossover happens at some point is it comes into the financial world. You know, we, we've seen some of it already come over into the sport world, right? Where you had one of the NBA players there tokenize his contract. You've seen it kind of early stages where you've had one of the hotels in Tahoe, I believe, tokenize their property. I think where the the huge crossover becomes is when the financial world comes around to this and they say, you know, instead of 
going to X investment bank to raise capital and you know it's going to cost me six to ten percent to raise that capital. It's going to be labor intensive. There's going to be errors, going to be problems. What about if I did it through a, a smart contract where I can track it, the trackability, the recurring revenue, as you say? You know, I think that's where the huge kind of crossover happens. And you've had some companies start to do that now. And you've had like I think we mentioned at one point we mentioned T Zero on on the podcast. You've had so some of these companies starting to think about how this works into into the real world. But NFTs definitely are you know, seem to be the rage right now. And you've had um, even uh, we've seen it on Twitter, right? We've seen some of the uh, the famous Twitterites, including the CEO Dorsey, sell his first tweet for two million dollars. So tokenized his tweet and he sold it for two million bucks. Yeah. So I already want to handle some of the objections that come up when it comes to this. Uh, one specifically that I've heard so many times already when I try to explain this, and I've kind of tested the waters when you, I just throw it out to people that you know sure. that I run into just in conversation to see what their initial feedback is. I did the exact same thing yes. with crypto and Bitcoin, right? And then because yeah, yeah. then you get the initial obje- the objections, right? So the first objection mm-hmm. is, oh well. Why would anybody ever pay for like a digital asset, like a tweet or like a piece of art, like a digital piece of art, right? When somebody can just copy and paste it or save it digitally or whatever, right? Well, I think there's a couple of arguments to to that. A couple of rebuttals is, I mean, there's tons of forgeries. Like how many famous paintings, like the Mona Lisa, how many forgeries or not even forgeries, prints of those types of things or famous photographs or whatnot right Uh, there's tons of prints so but if you have if you own the original right that's what really retains the value so i think people get stuck again with it's we saw the same thing with bitcoin when people was like oh well it's not like gold it's actually exactly like gold right it it has no real value right as far as as far as that's concerned so i think it's if you can wrap your head around the world changing how it works, just as a lot, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, I compared it to the internet and I, it just becomes yeah. more and more clear that that's exactly what's happening. Right. Sure. Is that, you know, yeah. with, with finance, you know, this is, this is, well, not just with finance, with the whole blockchain. Yeah. I think this is what's yeah. the world is, is turning to now. And this is just another piece of how, because where where do the smart where do the smart contracts live? Yeah, do you know? Yeah. You know where, yeah. where you on the block on the blockchain, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. all coming yeah. together very similar to the way that the internet did, right? Yeah. yeah. So that being said, you're going to see all these fingers branch off, just again like sure. the internet did. Like uh, Ask Jeeves yeah. didn't make it when Google yeah. did, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're like you're going to get a lot of people to point when some of these things fail and say, ah, see, I told you sure. that's not going to work like that, yeah. right? But yeah, that's not the point. We're building a new economy here, like a new social yeah. economy, basically, from these these tools. Sure. Yeah. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant yeah. there. I got a little too excited. No, no, look, that's fine. That's good, and I agree. I mean, I think that uh, I think we're probably like Bitcoin 2017, 2018. Like, I think we are getting a little bubbly on the NFTs, and you're right. But so I do think we cycle. But certainly, it's it's an important thing to think about, and I think it, it's going to be integral in, in the future. Yeah, I think again, I think it's yeah. going to mirror. I think it's going to mirror the way the internet worked too, right? We had the huge bubble burst in two thousand one, 
I don't think we've hit the 2001 yeah. yet for for crypto and blockchain and NFTs and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? There's still yeah. going to be a big sell off. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, do you have anything more to say about uh, that? I got all in the zone there. I felt like I felt like yeah, Will Ferrell on old school when he had to, in the debate when he just went in the zone. <laughs> what, what did I just say? No, look, I think that's a that's that's a good introduction. I think there's a, a ton of learning still to be had there. This a lot of the companies that are involved in it are still probably still pretty in the early phases. So I think that uh, there's still lots of money being thrown at it and chased around, and you see like you see these uh, the the things being sold at crazy levels, and you hear these stories about uh, cab drivers in New York City being invested in these different kind of NFTs. So a lot of those kind of side side stories are kind of telling you that that it's bubbly and some of these valuations are are crazy but i think very important to think about it to further understand it i mean this tokenization of assets is very abstract still for people to understand um, so hopefully we can continue to evolve to understand the block and and continue to explain that maybe we could get an expert on to talk really about kind of that blockchain and what it looks like and feels like and maybe do a better job of contextualizing it yeah you know what we could even do is we could even bring we could just we could put up a slide of an NFT uh, the next time and like for example that NFT yeah, just uh, just sold for like sixty eight million dollars right a digital yeah. art piece yeah. of art just sold for sixty eight yeah. million dollars we can bring that up and kind of do like a case study on that easy enough to do ourselves sure. yeah for sure well and I think the other thing to say too is that you know as advisors we have no way to invest in this it's not really at this no. stage it's an alternative investment right. You and I have been talking about this for probably a year, right? With T0, yeah. like we yeah. saw this coming a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there will be, yeah, like you so. said, I think there'll be a way. I think it'll integrate with regular finance probably a year, at least a year away, maybe yeah you got to think that some of these companies like galaxy digital and some of those those forward-thinking cryptologists are thinking about how to how do we how do we use this now how do we how do we make it work within our business and so you got a guy like mike novogratz and i keep referring to him because he's kind of that crossover guy right he comes from the finance world and then got really interested in in bitcoin so he's got the the kind of the knowledge and the thinking about how it works in both worlds like how it works in these the crypto world but also in finance so you got to think there's company these companies are, are thinking about that yeah hey if we if we talk any more about crypto and bitcoin you're, we're gonna have to switch the name of this podcast to real vision <laughs> hey yeah exactly you'll be raul and i'll be uh i don't know ash bennington <laughs> yeah ash i like that name actually i don't know anything about the guy but i like his name yeah, yeah, it's just, exactly. it's hard to ignore. It's a thing, like if we were doing a podcast yeah. in, uh, you know, the early 90s, we'd be talking about the internet and internet starts yeah. every single podcast, right? It's the same thing. Yeah. i got to stop using yeah, that so, example, but it's a good one. For sure. For sure. So we ready to move on? Drive on from it? I think we should go right, do you think we should take a break and go into the phase transition? Or do you think, like we're talking about Bitcoin, you just want to yeah, get yeah. right into your into your charts? 
Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, it just uh, a, li- a little chat before I get, before I get that. It was the Hedgeye Summit this week, which is I've talked about Hedgeye work and and follow their research and information. So we had I think we had ten hours of presentations this week that I listened to and watched some super interesting stuff. One thing that I picked up uh, that was a surprise that I hadn't thought about within the Bitcoin complex as a negative, which I'll mention at the end. It was kind of the first thing I thought. Well, that's something I hadn't thought about within one of the risks. So it's always good to have your have your view, but it's also important to realize there's there's important variables that you need to think about at all times. So I'll bring that back in at the end. But super interesting presentations, lots of great people. It's really more talk on, you know, macro. We have, there's a couple of hedge fund managers that gave some interesting great trade ideas, which I can comment on another day. But it's uh, almost the end of March, almost the end of the first quarter. So we've got to start to get to think about wrapping up that first quarter and start to write some research around that. But uh, yeah, let's let's jump into the charts here. I think you know this is this is a great opportunity to talk about this. Um, just let me get my uh, my screens up here. And this is a groundbreaking moment for the Think at Heart podcast. Yes. I just thought of one thing is that this is also an audio version on Spotify. A little plug, not a big deal. Keep the change. So you're going to have to describe it for audio too. So over describe the chart, if you don't mind. Just keeping that in mind. Okay. So can you see it? Are you good? You got it? People listening cannot see it. What's this one called? Cannot see it. So that's a good one. So listen, we've had lots of questions around. Is it a currency? Is it an, what kind of asset is it? What does it look like? And so this is a great report putting out by Deutsche Bank, uh, March fifteenth of this year. So they came out with uh, with a report. Very interesting. Obviously, everyone's got their own opinion of it. I have mixed views. I'm not saying it's a currency yet. I actually do think it coexists along with with many other currencies for a very long time. But uh, this chart says total value of currency in circulation in US dollars and billions. So there's a picture of uh, the, the currency that the most used in US dollars uh, out, out to the right-hand side. And so you got the US dollar, of course, is number one. You got the euro uh, as number two. And then the third total value of currency in circulation in US dollars is Bitcoin. Followed after that is Japanese yen, Indian rupee, and and so on and so forth. So you know the thing that I think is is the most interesting about this slide is that you're starting to get some of the big banks talk about Bitcoin as a currency, which a year ago you'd never have had that. Even today, I was surprised to see this. Mark Yusko uh, had posted this, and so uh, I thought this was pretty interesting. Any questions on that, Scott, before we jump on to the next one? No, you're going to get us banned from the bank, though, by using that, <laughs> <laughs> using that slide. Deutsche Bank? No, it's, it's, it's disclaimered. We're good. We're good. So this is, uh, it's okay. That's, the thing that's astonishing is watching and looking at the growth. You know, like it had like Bitcoin yeah. 2017 or whatever. And, the, and then, right. you know, just moving up. It's crazy yeah. in such a short period of time. The amount of growth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the other thing, this moving on, let's uh, let's keep going into the, into the chart deck. Uh, so this is another one. Actually, I didn't disclaimer this one, but we'll make sure we get them in here. This is uh, Citigroup. Citigroup put out a, a Bitcoin paper 
that uh, is, I think, 115 pages, so a nice light read. But, you know, this has been something that Ryle's talked about a couple of times, right, On the where he talks about the number of addresses that are holding Bitcoins. And so as, as people thought kind of early on, I think there was this the general thinking that it was, it was controlled and concentrated by only a few. And until you got to a certain level, you couldn't have an actual price appreciation until you reached that level. And so there, earlier this year, you got to the point where Ethereum started to have a thousand uh, addresses for every of ownership of the coins. Obviously, uh, Bitcoin continues to grow as we look at the slide, the chart there on the left. And then the other reason that it continued to think about the retail versus institutional ownership right now, this is one of the things that I think has kept me with the holding longer than I would have typically, right? Because, you know, the holding's gone up 400%. It's not often you get something that goes up 400%. So, but when we look at this, there's still the majority of Bitcoin is still held with retail, but you see the institutions starting to come in now. So you had North America as that first circle where 30% of it is now institutional. If we'd looked at this slide even a year ago, that would be a fraction of that. But now 30% of the ownership of Bitcoin is institutional North America. And then we look at Europe. So a similar type of mix, you get 63% retail, 30% institutional with a 7% unknown. And then we look at some of the other countries, Latin America, Middle East, North Africa, and Asia Pacific. So they got similar kinds of breakdowns. So I think when you look at the narrative, right, you get that kind of view that there's all this money is being used and held offshore by people doing illegal things and uh, transacting in legal ways. But when you look at actually who owns it, who trades in it, it's very heavily weighted to the developed market. And I think if we didn't mention on the on the previous uh, presentation about Bitcoin, you know, 30% of all legal transactions actually happen happen in physical currency versus somewhere closer to 10% uh, of the transactions in Bitcoin are illegal. So that kind of uh, dissuades some of those some of those myths. So any questions on these on these slide this presentation here? The thing that keeps blowing me away is the speed of adoption that we're the world is having now like we're not having these conversations a year ago right like yeah. just not yeah right and it just no. it's like the world has decided this is the way we're going and now it's now it's here it's moving fast it's certainly certainly moving fast still this is Hedgeye's, some of Hedgeye's research. So, you know, they were kind of early on to, they're really the first adopters that I know anyways that have back-tested how Bitcoin does in different economic cycles. And so the one amazing thing about what Hedgeye does is that they spend so much time studying the macro uh, on a daily basis. And really what they've done, if they've gone back and they've looked at how both Ethereum and Bitcoin have done depending on the current part of the cycle. And so why is this important? Well, this is important when I think about my my macro backdrop. So I look at where I think we are in the in the different markets. And so presently right now, we'd fall into that quad two where we have US growth accelerating and inflation accelerating. Canada would be in quad two as well. 
And so obviously Bitcoin does well in that in that part of the cycle. It does well in, in quad one, which is growth accelerating and inflation decelerating. We haven't had that set up in a while. And quad three, which we had last year at one point, which is growth decelerating and inflation accelerating. So that's typically the best time uh, for gold. And in turn, it's also the best time for Bitcoin. But uh, the quad four, which is uh, where it performs the worst, which is where most every other asset class, with the exception of treasuries, U.S. dollar, and gold tends to do well in, in quad four. But it's an interesting thing to think about because I expect we get into quad four at some point this year. As I think about positioning, I can have a long-term bullish view on something, but also have to think about how it's going to play out over the shorter term as well. Interesting. And we're going to talk about the phase transitions, right, uh, after this? Yeah, so I guess uh, the last uh, the last one here to have a quick look at would be the uh, how, how they compare to the different asset classes. So, you know, I, w- I would say that it's important to think about what's the correlation to Bitcoin to everything else. And so this is some really interesting stuff to look at and, and pay attention to as I think about how these different assets play off of each other. Right. Maybe just mention a couple of those just for the uh, just for the listeners. Maybe mention yeah. a couple like how it performs against some of these. Uh... Sure. Yeah. So on a on a yeah on a three month basis, Bitcoin presently has an inverse correlation of 0.56 to the U.S. dollar, and uh, would have a positive correlation to we'll say ten year tips, which is uh, inflation adjusted bonds, ten year bonds. On a shorter term period to look at, you can look at like the the one month, for example, tends to be interesting to look at. You know, of course, you have some positive correlations to some of the other currencies. So like Ethereum to Bitcoin would be a 0.81. Litecoin would be 0.76. So you'd have pretty high correlations to that. But then inverse correlations to some of the other things like volatility, a kind of a neutral neutral, uh, correlation to gold. Gold, which is interesting because there's a lot of gold blogs that say, you know, the reason gold's not where it is today is because Bitcoin is stealing all the attention. Well, that's not not necessarily the case, or at least not necessarily reflective in the numbers. Love the charts. Love the charts, man. Yeah, so the last one. So we had, I listened to um, Stephanie Pomboy. She's a really interesting economist, forecasters, and thinking about uh, valuations. She talks a lot about valuations in the world. You know, there's one of the few people out there still that thinks that valuations matter. And so, you know, she had a great presentation with, with Keith McCullough. And they talked about where she thought markets could go, and you know, I, I won't, I won't uh, give out uh, my my view and what she said there. But the one thing that was really interesting is she talked about the, what's happening with regards to the rating agencies. So, you know, as you see, Square and PayPal and uh, MicroStrategy and Tesla invest in Bitcoin. The rating agencies like Moody's and S&P, they've decided that they're putting those companies under review. So they actually are, which I think is very interesting, something that I hadn't thought about. And they said, you know, they, they still have a ruling out how they're going to recognize that capital on their balance sheet by moving cash, which is obviously 
perfect when the rating agencies are looking, right? That's high, that's the highest quality asset you can have on the balance sheet. So presently right now, the account the accounting is you can record it the same way as an asset on the balance sheet, but Moody's and S&P and all the, all the other agencies, rating agencies for that matter right now have presently put that under review. And so it's something to pay attention to. You know, I think that you would have a massive uprising if they, if they, did do that by the Bitcoin community, the libertarians, like you could really get a, a huge revolt, but it's certainly something to, to pay attention to. And you learned a lot this week, eh, that uh, conference? That, uh, I always learn it. We do have the Real Vision conference next week. Is it next week? Yes, crypto conference next week. Are you going to let yeah. me go to that one? you going to let yes, me partake? Yes. Hey, come, yes. Coming over, I'll bring the popcorn. I'll bring my uh, Bitcoin foam finger. <laughs> I thought I thought you were getting a hat. I know. I don't know what hat. happened to it. <laughs> it hasn't showed up yet. <laughs> Did you pay in Bitcoin? I didn't pay in Bitcoin. That's maybe that's the problem. They didn't recognize it as currency. So, oh, it's my cryptocurrency joke of the day. Okay, you did touch on a little bit there the uh, phase transitions, maybe potentially going into quad sure. four. Maybe just talk a little yeah. bit, do a very brief overview of what the what the phases are, and then talk about where you think we're going with that. Yeah, so I think we're presently still in that that setup where we're in that that quad two setup, which is growth or growth is accelerating and inflation is accelerating as well. So that's the present setup we are today. And so we've had really in the last couple of weeks, kind of those first signals that maybe we're starting to get to the latter part of that. So when we first went into this about six months ago, you had China, India, South Korea, you had these countries kind of leading the way into that. And so they had that first initial bump and a huge acceleration. And that lasted up until about three weeks ago, I think, when, when there was a signal that we were starting to change and those, those markets were starting to slow down. And so we had that happen. We had tech signal. We're starting to get into a place that maybe uh, start to pay attention, take some profits off the table on that. So, you know, we're starting to see some early signals that maybe we're getting to, you know, if you broke out the quad two into three sections, you know, we're probably into the back third of this kind of growth accelerating and inflation accelerating. You know, today we saw that, that kind of first breakdown too in those inflation trades. So oil sold off. We had some of the other commodities sell off. As well, and you had tech get cranked today as well, down the, with the QQQ down three percent. And at the same time, we've had the the U.S. ten-year explode over the past couple of weeks. So the U.S. ten-year you got to kind of one seventy-three, one seventy-four. Um, my my present view is we we could kind of get into that one seventy range. Hedge has got a kind of higher level of number, but you've had a lot of things start to signal that maybe we're getting late in this part. And so I still think there's opportunity. I still think there's money to be made, but we're starting to get some some warning signals. And so as we start to think about the back half of 
this year is I start I, my expectation is we do get into that quad two quad four excuse me which is slowing growth and slowing inflation and so the one thing that I think if we watch and I, I watch a lot of research from from the banks and the other institutional houses and they look at you know kind of a we're on a straight line trajectory up and nothing can go wrong you know I think that the the challenge that people have and the, the the thing that I've had to learn over the years too is that the likelihood is we're going to have growth and in inflation this year but what's the direction of that growth and in inflation so what's the rate of change of that growth and in inflation so you know if we come off and we're we have a you know a five percent print in GDP when we probably got about ten percent in q2 this year of GDP growth in the US and what's the next quarter going to look like well it's going to be less than that so it's going to be less than that dramatically it's still going to be a, a good number maybe four four or five percent GDP growth but if you go from 10 to four or five, the rate of change of that number is is pretty dramatic, and the markets don't like that. And so, you know, I I used to look at an absolute number too and think, well, you know, if we go from ten to ten to five, that's fine. You know, GDP is still growing, inflation is still growing, the market should be fine with that. But what you found, and what I found from following the data and listening to uh, to Keith and his team as they've back tested all this research, the markets actually don't like that. If if the direction is changing, you need to change with that. On the other side of it, I think we start to accelerate again. But you know, the, those kind of that uh, middle of the year to maybe uh, early fourth quarter, I think we get slowing numbers that could be quite dramatic if you if we stay with the existing positions that we have. Hmm. So how like when you, you often refer to these quads, right? Yeah. Yep. And you've been following them for a long time. How accurate is it? Like, do you find like, is there a spot on every time? Like exactly yep. what what they've predicted that usually happens? Yeah. So they've been very accurate. As for their quad four calls, they've been super accurate. So their actual calls on the uh, that particular phase of the cycle, they've been the the best that I've seen over my twenty years. The challenge is it's not a it's not a uh, it's not like you get a bing in your your inbox and it says we're we're transitioning today. <laughs> Right, it's a, it's a, it's not like here you go. Here's the lottery ticket. Well, it's here in quad four. Yeah, it's quad four day. Yeah, exactly. Sell everything and buy everything else. Exactly. So they've been good, uh, but the the challenge and and where my like where my value add is is that I actually you actually have to manage that. You have to manage through that because it's not it's not a signal like there's no signal at the top there's no signal at the bottom you have to think and pay attention to it and the data comes in every day so you have to look at it every day so you know, sometimes kind of further to I've had a couple of client questions where they're like oh, you, you know you bought Apple at 129 and then you sold it at 129 and a half that doesn't make a lot of sense well it's it's that 120 now so you know you get that signal to buy it you look at it it seems to be working but then you get a, a new data point and the new data point says this isn't going to work anymore <laughs> so you need to uh, you need to ad- adapt to it yep so if this has caught some people's attention, right, and you've mentioned it a few times as far as the quads are concerned in this type of strategy, where, where do people 
why don't you give them a plug since you refer to it all the time? Where where can people kind of look into this more? Yeah, so hedgeye.com would be uh, the place to look at some of the research. They do have trials. You can go in and, and look at, uh, they got 30-day trials. You can try their their one of their ma- uh, daily macro show where they give an update on, on what they're doing. So that, that'd be the best place. Um, Keith McCullough and Darius Dale are on Twitter as well, and they put out a lot of interesting stuff there too. Canadians too. Yeah, yeah, Keith McCullough's from... Thunder Bay, yep. Yeah, where did Keith play hockey? So he went to he went to he went to Yale. He went to Yale. Play hockey there? Yeah, I think so. Didn't he? He played hockey at Yale. Yep. Play hockey at Yale. Yep. I gotta trust yeah. him. Gotta trust him. <laughs> okay. Want to wrap her up? I think so. I think we're getting to the end. I'm just seeing if there's anything else that I hit on there. Nope. I think that's good. Think that's it. Yeah. So I think that the, we didn't talk much about yields today, but I think that's the big, the big uh, trigger, the big thing to pay attention to. So what do we do? We have time. something lined up for next week. Do we have a special guest for lined up for next week? Is that a done deal? I'd say it's ninety percent of the way there. Yeah. If it's not, they're definitely coming. All right. Well, let's let's say who it is anyway, or what it's about yeah, at least. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Tom Savage. So he's an investment portfolio manager with Picton Mahoney, and uh, they run our merger arbitrage strategy. And they also are an expert in SPACs. So they're going to talk about merger arb and SPACs and what they mean and and what they do. And super SPACs are super hot. We need this guy on to talk about the SPACs. Yes, that's going to be great. It's going to be great. And, and merger arb. So another thing, I mean, so we had Ryan last week. I mean, this is an institutional strategy that Ryan talked about with the options. And merger arb, again, like uh, CPP and OMERS, they'd have their own internal managers that run these exact strategies. So these, uh, this is going to be an interesting one as well. Can't wait. All right. Episode 11 in the books. See you next week. Think at heart, Heart Investment Group. <laughs>